Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a restful Thanksgiving break. Today we're starting with a question. What happened to the Voting Rights Act? The short answer is that the Supreme Court in a 2013 case called Shelby County v. Holder declared that one section of that act was outdated, needed to be updated by Congress, and Congress hasn't done that yet. So this main provision of the Voting Rights Act sits dormant. It's not being enforced right now. But for the longer story, I want to start with a different question. Are we a republic or a democracy? Sounds like an academic question, but it ties in here to voting rights. At the University of Missouri, I'm the director of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. Every once in a while, someone will tweet at us or post on our Facebook page that we're a republic and not a democracy, usually with a few exclamation points at the end. Whether or not that's true depends on what we mean by those words. If by republic we mean a system of government in which people vote for representatives who will make decisions on their behalf, then we are, of course, a republic. There are places where the founders compared this, the idea of a republic, with what they called a pure democracy, such as in Federalist No. 10, where James Madison says that a pure democracy is, quote, a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. There's no representation in a democracy. Everybody participates in every decision and the majority rules. And Madison compares that, a pure democracy, to what he calls a republic or, quote, a government in which a scheme of representation takes place. By this definition, we've never been a democracy. We elect representatives, and they're chosen from different districts and different states, and they represent different interests. The majority of the people as a whole don't always rule, and the people of the nation as a whole are broken down into smaller units. The people of Missouri, or the people of Boone County, or the people of the Fifth Ward of the City of Columbia. And even then, not all of the people are eligible to vote, and a lot of the people who are eligible to vote don't bother voting. This is how the American Republic moves along, not by a majority vote of the nation for every decision, but by the majority vote of citizens in smaller regions and jurisdictions. Not all of those regions and jurisdictions with the same number of people or with equal political influence. So it's not a pure democracy. But this system is sometimes called a representative democracy, a constitutional democracy, or even just a democracy, and not just in recent writings or recent usage. You can find references to the U.S. as some kind of democracy in the writings of John Adams, Noah Webster, Thomas Jefferson, James Wilson, even Chief Justice John Marshall. William Blackstone, the preeminent 18th century commentator on the English common law, used the term democracy to refer to governments that elected their representatives, and he thought that England had a democratic element in Parliament. Some of the confusion comes from the fact that the two words have different origins. Republic is a Latin term that means the people's affair. Democracy is a Greek term that means the people rule. Both point to what Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address described as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And both are often juxtaposed to monarchy or aristocracy. In the U.S., at least in theory, the people govern themselves through representative institutions created by state and national constitutions. Our government is, in that sense, a constitutional democracy or constitutional republic, which is the same thing. Or as Eugene Volokh put it in a column a while back, we are perhaps more accurately described as a constitutional federal representative democracy. 
but I think it's best not to get hung up on the label and to think more about the substance of the thing we're describing. How does the Constitution set all of this up? How do the people select representatives? Who counts as part of the people? And who among the people gets to vote? Here's a 30,000-foot overview of those questions before we get into the details of the Voting Rights Act. First, there's no constitutional right to vote. The Constitution ratified in 1789 doesn't say anything about eligibility to vote in state elections. That's a state-level issue. About federal elections, it says only that if you're eligible to vote for the most numerous branch of your state legislature, then you're eligible to vote for the election of your U.S. representative. Senators were originally chosen by state legislatures, and the president is chosen by electors that are appointed in any manner that the state legislature should choose. So there's no federal constitutional right of a U.S. citizen to vote in either state or federal elections, and eligibility to vote in federal elections is largely determined by your state legislature. What do we take away from that? One, sometimes you'll hear somebody say that the Constitution says you have to be a white landowning male to vote. That's not actually in the Constitution. And it was only true of voting in federal elections in the early republic to the extent that state laws adopted those kinds of restrictions for their own state elections. But there was wide variation in eligibility requirements in the states. In New Jersey, for example, single women and free blacks could vote so long as they met the property requirement. And free black men gained the right to vote in New York during the era of gradual emancipation just after the revolution. Those are small counterexamples, but they highlight the point that nothing about the Constitution prevented states from enfranchising more and more people and expanding the vote if the state legislatures chose to do that. But the Constitution in 1789 also did nothing to prevent discrimination in voting on the basis of sex or race or age or any other characteristic. That came later. The 15th Amendment in 1870 prevents discrimination in state or federal elections based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The 17th Amendment in 1913 requires the popular election of the Senate rather than allowing state legislatures to appoint the senators. The 19th Amendment in 1920 prevents discrimination on the basis of sex, giving women the right to vote everywhere in the nation. And of course, there are other ways to discriminate, and states did, requiring literacy tests and poll taxes, for example, that were used in the South to suppress the black vote in particular. That was the target of two separate developments in the 1960s, the 24th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act. The 24th Amendment in 1964 prevents poll taxes, but the Voting Rights Act of 1965 goes much further. It prohibits racial discrimination in voting, and it puts into place a framework to give that prohibition some teeth. The two sections that are significant for us are Section 4 and Section 5. What they do is they identify states and localities that have a history of racial discrimination in voting through literacy tests and poll taxes and had significantly lower voter registration and turnout in a presidential election than the national average. And then they require those states and localities to have any changes to their voting laws cleared first by the Department of Justice before those new laws can take effect. Section 4 lays out what we call the coverage formula and tells us which states are covered based on data from the 1960s and 1970s. Section 5 lays out the preclearance procedures for the federal government, the way a state or locality can get approval for changes to its election laws. Those provisions were originally set to expire after five years, but Congress has reauthorized them a number of times, including a 25-year reauthorization in 2006. But the last time Congress updated the coverage formula was in the 1970s. About a decade ago, officials in Shelby County, Alabama, brought a case against Attorney General Eric Holder, arguing that the coverage formula in Section 4 and the preclearance requirement in Section 5 are unconstitutional. They wanted the court to issue a permanent injunction against the enforcement of these parts of the law. What's the argument here? Why would they be unconstitutional? 
The court's analysis begins with what they call the fundamental principle of the equal sovereignty of the states. If Congress is going to pass a law that treats different states differently, then it must have a good reason. It must be justified in doing so. The coverage formula and the preclearance requirement were justified in 1965, according to the court, because of exceptional circumstances related to what the court in a previous case had called the blight of racial discrimination in voting that had infected the electoral process in parts of our country for nearly a century. The coverage formula was connected to conditions at the time, and so was justified at the time, according to the court. But 50 years later, conditions had changed. Poll taxes and literacy tests were not in use. Voter registration and turnout was about at parity with the national average. And for that reason, the court says, Section 4's coverage formula is unconstitutional in light of these current conditions. And if Section 4's coverage formula is unconstitutional because it's treating different states differently without justification, then the preclearance requirement no longer applies to any states because no state is covered. Now, if Congress chose to update the coverage formula, they could. They could create some formula that is connected to the problem being addressed, and then Section 5 preclearance would presumably kick back in. And it's important to keep in mind that none of this licenses discrimination based on race in federal elections. It's still prohibited both by the Constitution and by the Voting Rights Act. But any legal challenge to a change in election law has to come after the fact. There's no requirement that a state or locality seek permission from the federal government before changing its election laws. The way this plays out today in our current politics is in disputes over voter registration and photo ID laws, or mail-in balloting, redistricting questions, and things along those lines. And the question is whether they have a disproportionate effect on voters from specific racial or ethnic groups. In those instances, people may still bring legal challenges against the state election laws. There just won't be any pre-clearance requirement before the law is going to effect. The court in this case, in Shelby County, divides sharply over the significance and the likely consequences of this decision. Listen briefly here to the different perspectives of the majority opinion announcement from Justice Roberts and the rare dissenting opinion announcement from Justice Ginsburg. First, Justice Roberts. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. Voting discrimination against African Americans was so entrenched and pervasive in 1965 that, to cite just one example, less than 7 percent of African Americans of voting age in Mississippi have been able to register to vote. In contrast, 70 percent of white citizens of voting age were registered, a gap of 63 percentage points. Prodded to action by the Civil Rights Movement, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to confront that problem. The Act prohibited racial discrimination in voting and banned literacy tests and the like that were being used to prevent African Americans from voting. Those provisions are not at issue here. Congress then went on to adopt other measures to address the extraordinary nature of the problem it faced. First, it required states to submit any proposed voting change to the United States Attorney General or a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., before such a change could take effect. This was a significant departure from basic principles of our federal system. Second, the Act made this requirement applicable only to some states, a similar departure from the principle that states enjoy equal sovereignty. The preclearance requirement applied only to those states that had a voting test in 1964 and had less than 50 percent voter registration or turnout in the 1964 election. 
Congress recognized that a voting test was used as a means to keep African Americans from registering or voting, and that the resulting discrimination would show up in low voting numbers. The formula meant that six states in the South were covered. Reflecting the unprecedented nature of this selective preclearance regime, the provisions were temporary, set to expire after five years. The Act was challenged, but this Court upheld it, saying, and I quote, exceptional conditions can justify legislative measures not otherwise appropriate. The Act was extended in 1970 for an additional five years, in 1975 for an additional seven, in 1982 for an additional 25, and in 2006 for an additional 25. The last time the coverage formula was updated, however, the formula for deciding which jurisdictions had to submit voting changes was with the 1975 extension. That means that jurisdictions are covered today based on whether they had a voting test and low voter registration or turnout in 1964, 1968, or 1972. The Act has been a resounding success. You will recall the 7 percent registration figure for African Americans in Mississippi in 1965. It was 76 percent in 2004. As for the gap of 63 percentage points between African American and white voter registration in that state in uh, 1965, there was a gap in 2004 of about 4 percent, but it was in favor of African American registration. There are examples of progress more poignant than the numbers. During the Freedom Summer of 1964 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Three men were murdered while working in the area to register African-American voters. On Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama in 1965, police beat and used tear gas on hundreds marching in support of enfranchising African-Americans. Today, both Philadelphia, Mississippi and Selma, Alabama have African-American mayors. No one doubts that there is still voting discrimination in the South and in the rest of the country, As noted, when we upheld the original Act, we said that exceptional conditions can justify legislative measures not otherwise appropriate. The question is whether the extraordinary measures of preclearance and disparate treatment of the states that were upheld 45 years ago remain constitutional in light of today's changed conditions. Roberts then goes on to argue that Section 4 can't be justified with the data from the early 1970s. And Justice Ginsburg disagreed sharply. And here's her rare dissent announcement. The majority and the dissenters agree on two points. First, race-based voting discrimination still exists. No one doubts that. Second, the Voting Rights Act addresses an extraordinary problem, a near century of disregard for the dictates of the 15th Amendment, And Congress has taken extraordinary measures to meet the problem. Beyond those two points, the Court divides sharply. Congress failed to redo the coverage formula, the Court holds. The Court holds that that renders inoperative the preclearance remedy of Section 5. Section 5 cannot operate without the formula. Section 5 is 
the provision far more effective than any other in securing minority voting rights and stopping backsliding. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and I are of the view that Congress's decision to renew the Act and keep the coverage formula was an altogether rational means to serve the end of achieving what was once the subject of a dream, the equal citizenship stature of all in our polity, a voice to every voter in our democracy, undiluted by race. Most fundamentally, we see the issue as a who-decides question. In this regard, we note that the very First Amendment to our Constitution exhibits a certain suspicion of Congress. It instructs Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. The Civil War amendments are of a distinctly different thrust. Thus, the 15th Amendment instructs that the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race, and it vests in Congress, as do the 13th and 14th Amendments, power to enforce the guaranteed right by appropriate legislation. As the standard-setting decision, South Carolina v. Katzenbach, puts it, as against the reserved powers of the states, Congress may use any rational means to effectuate the constitutional prohibition of race discrimination in voting. Congress sought to do just that in 1965 when it initially passed the Voting Rights Act, and in each reauthorization, including the most recent one. Indeed, the 2006 reauthorization was the product of the most earnest consideration. Over a span of more than 20 months, the House and Senate Judiciary Committees held 21 hearings, heard from scores of witnesses, received numerous investigative reports, and other documentation showing that serious and widespread intentional discrimination persists in covered jurisdictions. In all, the legislative record filled more than 15,000 pages. Representative Sensenbrenner, then chair of the House Judiciary Committee, described the record supporting reauthorization as one of the most extensive considerations of any piece of legislation that the United States Congress had dealt with in the 27 and a half years he had served in the House. The reauthorization passed the House by a vote of 390 to 33. The vote in the Senate was 98 to 0. President Bush signed the reauthorization a week after he received it, noting the need for further work in the fight against injustice and calling the extension an example of our continued commitment to, to a united America where every person is treated with dignity and respect. Why was Congress intent on renewing Section 5 particularly? As the Chief Justice explained, Section 5 requires covered jurisdictions to obtain preclearance before making changes in voting laws that might introduce new methods of voting discrimination. Congress found, first of all, that Section 5 had been enormously successful in increasing minority registration and access to the ballot. 
but it also learned how essential Section 5 was to prevent a return to old ways. In 1995, for example, the state of Mississippi was stopped by Section 5 from bringing back its Jim Crow era dual voter registration system. And in 2006, Texas was stopped from curtailing early voting in a predominantly Latino district in defiance of this court's order to reinstate the district after Texas tried to eliminate it. Congress confronted similar examples of discrimination in covered jurisdictions by the score. Of signal importance, Congress found that as registration and voting by minority citizens impressively increased, other barriers sprang up to replace the tests and devices that once impeded access to the ballot. These second-generation barriers included racial gerrymandering, switching from district by district voting to at-large voting, discriminatory annexations, methods more subtle than the visible methods used in 1965, but serving effectively to diminish a minority community's ability to exercise clout in the electoral process. One of those second-generation barriers that Ginsburg mentions is racial gerrymandering, the drawing of legislative districts in such a way that the power of racial voting blocks is diminished in the electoral process. But there are other kinds of gerrymanders, those based on partisan advantage or regional interests or those that favor incumbents of both parties. And these cases about legislative districts bring another constitutional provision into play, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws. And so we'll turn next to the question of gerrymandering and the Equal Protection Clause. 